You are listening to Bicycle Retail Radio, brought to you by the National Bicycle Dealers Association. Welcome to this edition of the NBDA Bicycle Retail Radio podcast. Uh, I am Fred Clements, and I'm here with uh, retail expert Dan Mann. Hi, Dan. Good morning. How you doing, Fred? Yeah, I'm doing fine. So if I didn't give some background on myself, Dan threatened to do so on my behalf. So I'm taking this opportunity to say I am Fred Clements. My background in the bike industry started in 1988 as an editor for the now departed Cyclist Magazine. I I spent then 28 years with the National Bicycle Dealers Association as executive director and then vice president, and then six months with Interbike preparing for the 2017 trade show. And uh, I attended the 2018 event as a consultant with Efficient Velo Tools, my friend Brett Fleming. And I first met Dan Mann, I think, Dan, it was in 2004 when you came in to help uh, the NBDA with strategic planning and goal setting and vision and mission. And that went great. And you worked with NBDA on that for a number of years. And then on specific programs, you basically founded the NBDA's uh, profitability project P2 program. Since then, your your company has grown a lot where you're doing retail consulting in many industries. I've noted, of course, bicycle, but outdoor running, the apparel industry, and others I'm sure that you can bring up as part of your background. But you've worked with a number of bicycle industry suppliers at a high level and retailers as well. And so uh, welcome, Dan. My pleasure. And and Fred, when you think about it, that means that we've we've worked together extensively for 15 years uh, back with the National Bicycle Dealers Association in 04. And, and your memory is correct. We started in Nashville for the first ever uh, strategic planning session that I was involved with. And uh, you and I have worked pretty hand in hand for many years since. Mm-hmm. Yep. In fact, the main group is 17 years old and, and even even today, the National Bicycle Dealers Association is our number one all-time client in terms of, of our work, our time together, days we've spent together. So we have a great partnership. I would agree with that. So so I'm really curious about how your observations in these various industries, you know, any comments you might have, because I'm kind of narrowly focused on the bicycle industry and you've broadened out into numerous industries. How do you have any feelings about active retailers faring during these <laughs> times of clearly disruption? Yeah, so we, we're we focused, the man group works with uh, bike, the run industry, the outdoor industry, fly fishing. Uh, we do work in apparel and, and some fashion businesses. We work in action sports like ski and, and snowboard and skateboard. Uh, and I can say across the board that that all of these retailers are facing many of the same pain, growing pains, and just uh, the evolving pains that the that the specialty retail world is. Uh, customers have a lot of options, and, um, and 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 the fact that customers have a lot of options means they have a lot of power and control over how they buy and and engage with uh, with businesses like ours. So, if I'm getting bad a bad experience, uh, today's consumer doesn't feel that they have no option. They know they have options. In fact. Uh, you can grab a phone and immediately uh, make a purchase inside the business of a retailer that you don't like. Uh, and, and those options are increasing. So it, it means that, that more and more of these retailers are going to, are going to fail. More and more of these retailers are going to suffer. 
unless they evolve uh, and emerge into something different. And if they're not responsive to the custom experience that every single customer is looking for, that unique uh, one-of-a-kind experience that every customer wants, if a retailer that can't provide that is going to have trouble. So, so I know you've aimed much of the man group's work on uh, training staff in, in retailers. And, and I guess that would play well into that comment about focusing on the customer experience. What do you find are the keys to providing that experience that the customers are looking for today? Yeah, it, it doesn't take much of a Google search to, to look into retail and land on the word customer experience. And uh, the word, you know, the concept of customer experience has become crucial, both in an online uh, experience as well as inside of a brick and mortar experience. The challenge today is everybody wants their own experience. So we say that that it's up to the retailer to offer an experience that that customer standing right in front of them wants, a one of a kind experience. And that is just becoming increasingly challenged. The word retail comes actually from the root word, I think it may be Italian, of tailored. And so uh, the retail world evolves from this idea of tailored. And that tailored language is exactly what you can picture, that custom fit, unique garment built just for me. And, And, you know, specialty retail still has that as its ideology. Mass retail doesn't necessarily. But if we believe that everybody walking into our bike store is looking to pursue the sport in the same way that we do. And we try to force that customer into that shopping experience in the way we think we would like it, then we're going to immediately have some conflict. Uh, Customers approach us uh, with caution. Customers approach us with a bit of fear. Uh, Customers, some customers approach us uh, with a lot of uh, research. They're prepared. And so what it calls for, Fred, to answer your question, is that it calls for a tremendous amount of preparedness. And it calls for a, a, a tremendous amount of, I think, a, building a great team in terms of the sales force, in terms of the, the folks working on the sales force, so that the owner creates a, a team of people who understand this, are committed to delivering it, and then are prepared to do so. So that preparation means, number one, we understand the product. And, and secondly, it means that we are flexible and adaptable to the customer that's walking in the door. And so, you know, those of us in the bike industry, we were a very opinionated bunch. <laughs> and, you know, the, the, the mountain bikers uh, tend to look down on the road uh, cyclists. Uh, road cyclists tend to look down on entry-level riders. And uh, I, I don't know that uh, anybody has a handle on the e-bike uh, rider, but bottom line is we all have these strong opinions and all that's great. We're passionate. But when it, when that, you know, evolves into or or infringes upon the customer's shopping experience. And that customer picks up on any sense of judgment or any sense of dismissiveness. Well, we're, you're going to be in pain because that customer uh, has the power to go out and, and communicate that to their friends and family. You know, in the old days, it used to be that you know, a customer who wasn't happy could communicate that to 10 people, would communicate that to 10 people saying, don't go to that store. Well, these days, between social media and Yelp and a variety of other avenues, a customer who's unhappy with you can raise a lot of negative opinion about you through their resources of doing that. And and customers will do that. They'll take this sort of bad experience very personally 
and uh, we can't risk that. So uh, there's even more online than there ever has been to do this better. So I think I think that's why it matters and that's what it takes. Yeah. Is there, um, you know, with your experience in several industries, I, I realized from my my years in the industry that there's a lot that goes into retailing, a lot of different areas to focus on where you really need to be good. Is there do you in your mind, is there a most important thing that a successful retailer needs to focus on or is it, you know, six most important things? <laughs> Yeah, that's a terrific question. There is so much uh, at risk right now for bike retail. And I'm, I'm going to just rattle off a handful of things that I think are that I'm seeing as, as being very important. Maybe I'll come back to prioritizing them. First and foremost, right now, I think the specialty bike retailer is challenged with inventory planning. Um, as margins are shrinking and as competition arises and as there's a direct to consumer opportunity, um, having the right product in the right sizes, in the right colors, at the right price, at the right time is getting more and more difficult. And the days of having your, your vendor tell you what you needed to have on your sales floor and ordering it for you, those days are gone. Uh, you as a retailer must understand what's coming in at the right time, at the right price, and sell it at the best possible margin you can get. This cannot be accidental. Uh, when I've got an internet full of options, and I can choose any size and color and have it in available and on my front door in, in two or three days, um, the retailer in the specialty bike industry can't do that. We don't have 100,000 square foot stores, most of us. We're, we're 3,000 square foot, 5,000 square foot, 10, 15,000 square foot stores, and with a compacted selling season of maybe four or five or six months based on the seasonality of our business. So uh, we've got to have a curated selection, and it's got to be exactly right for the market. And based on our historical data, it's got to also be, we got to have it in the right quantities. So it's valuable and sellable and desirable for the customer at the time when that's needed. So that requires some healthy research. That requires some significant planning. And it requires that we have an educated retailer who's doing the right thing. So, so inventory planning right now is going to cause a lot of retailers pain if they don't get it right. You know, so this, this one's a big one. Uh, additionally to that, the retailers today have got to be focused on having the right sales force, the right team. You know, the bike industry values service and being great with your hands and great as a mechanic and understanding problem solving and executing. This this job is never going to go away and it's never been more important. So so the, the, the service side of our business is is absolutely crucial. This is a zero. There could be zero uh, failure, no zero tolerance for failure in service. But what's often not valued both in the service side of our business and on the sales floor is quality salesmanship. The, the selling of the product, the communication of, of product knowledge and, and features and benefits, and then building rapport and building trust so that I can put my product knowledge together with this customer's needs and do it profitably has got to become important. Uh, and I, you know, I am an advocate for a, quality uh, salesmanship on the sales floor. Now, where this is going to take us next, Fred, in terms of terms of the big issues, it brings us to then the third issue. I've started with inventory. And I've talked about a sales force. 
the third issue, and this one is coming for us, and it is a big issue, and that is uh, staff compensation. We must address the capacity to hire and keep quality people. Now, every employee who in a bike store is listening to this is probably high-fiving and applauding that, that I just said that. And every owner who's responsible for uh, profitability is, is, uh, is rolling their eyes and holding their breath. So let me be clear. I am talking about a win-win, not just giving more money to, to, to a staff. We must address compensation as it must become a win-win. And that win-win means that we may maintain profitability at the retailer level, but we also offer opportunities to our sales associates and our service folks that are good at it. Now, I'm headed toward a conversation around uh, incentive-based and performance-based compensation. So we, 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 we say commission an awful lot, and, and what I'm talking about is not really straight comp uh, commission compensation. I'm talking about giving people the opportunity to perform, see results, and benefit as a result of their contribution. There is a way for that to mathematically work out to the benefit of the retailer. Now, this is a whole different conversation, Fred, than we can have on this podcast, but I can tell you this is a big issue facing specialty bike retail. Uh, effective compensation strategies that become a win-win for both the owner of the business and uh, the staff. So uh, summarize then, inventory planning is priority, hiring and maintaining and keeping the right staff who understand and value customer experience and can sell it. And then finally, the compensation uh, needs that that help us then, you know, match both of those together. So those are the big three as I see it. And there's there's plenty more I could I could rattle off, but those come to mind right off the top of my head. I remember when we started working together, Dan, uh, one of the first seminars you did uh, uh, for the NBDA at Interbike was on hiring and employee uh, issues. Um, at that point, you kind of blew me away with your notion, hire a personality, don't hire for expertise, uh, because personality, you can always teach the expertise, the personality you can't change. Through these years of doing it, are you still on that uh, that wavelength in terms of hiring? I am absolutely still on that wavelength. And and, and actually, I'll, I'll divide it in, into three areas that if you could imagine a Venn diagram overlapping each other, each of them, the, each of these three aspects must be considered. Number one, you must hire for the people skills uh, to do the job. You must have you must hire someone who's capable of engaging, being curious, listening, works well on a team. Uh, is able to engage and build rapport. Secondly, you must hire the technical skills to do the job. So uh, you do have to hire people in service and bike building and other elements of the job and bookkeeping, all the elements of the job that have the technical skills to do the job. And then thirdly, with people skills and technical skills, you also must hire the history of commitment, people who understand the ability to commit. And so while people skills and and personality are crucial, and, and the reason why I made a point about that in that seminar, Fred, is the, the bike industry is notorious for hiring just the technical skills without the people skills and the ability to commit. So it takes all three. It takes the people skills, the technical skills, and the ability to commit to make a great employee. So, you know, we, we, you know I think the, probably the biggest mistake we make in hiring 
in the bike industry is, is we hire people who previously worked in the bike industry. So someone presents himself at your front door saying, I'm looking for a job. Okay, tell me about yourself. Well, I used to work for XYZ Bike Shop in XYZ Town. Well, how long did you work there? Five years. Okay, good. Well, you must be good. So come to work for me. Put this person on the sales floor. Put this person in the service department with no training, no setting of expectations, no understanding of our approach, and find out six months later or six years later we've made a mistake. That's because we hire without setting expectations. We hire because someone worked at a different shop somewhere else. And and what happens when you do that is you've brought someone in and put them on your sales floor. And this is someone who another person trained, another person set the expectations. And you can't figure out why we're not getting the results we want. Well, because you didn't take the time to create the training, to create the expectations and to create the opportunities. I'll tell you a quick story about that. Uh, Fred, and that is years ago in my previous life, before I started the man group, I ran a company called Backrack. It was a men's clothing company, 75 stores, and we sold men's suits and, and that sort of thing. And of course, our big competitor at that time back in the 90s was Men's Warehouse, uh, Joseph A. Banks, those kinds of companies. And over the years of of trying to hire people from Men's Warehouse to come into our business, we found that the the the, the approach and the methodology that was trained to those sales associates was counter the opposite of what we believed was our customer experience. And it eventually came to the point that we said, you cannot hire someone who has previous men's clothing experience. Now, that seems like a strong statement, but we would rather hire someone with the capacity to engage with people with great people skills and train them on the technical skills because we found that if we had someone who had a preconceived idea about this experience and had been trained elsewhere, it was virtually impossible for us to change their opinion or to change their habits. So I'm not saying that's exactly true in the bike industry. I'm just saying that for those of us in bike, when we make the mistake of hiring without setting expectations, hiring because they worked somewhere else previously, without providing our own training, uh, we may be setting them and us up for failure. So yes, uh, to answer your question in a long way, yeah, I still believe we've got to bring those people skills into equal importance with the technical skills to be effective. Yeah. Is that a, you know, I think a lot of bike retailers and I know myself, you know, I I love the equipment. That stuff really gets me pumped up when Shimano comes out with a new Grupo or something, you know, I'm I'm into it. And I think a lot of bike shops are too. Is that something, is that a problem that, not a problem really, but um do the other industries you work with have that similar dynamic of, oh, my gosh, we just love the, the running shoes or the outdoor equipment um, to the detriment of our ability to sell to the average Joe? Yeah, I see this a lot in the fly fishing industry. These folks, you know, the, the better best part of their day is to be on the water fishing. And the, these guys are you know, they're passionate about it. They're on the water every day. All that's good. But in, in many ways, that ends up not being great retail if, if they're not careful. If they don't focus on uh, you know, on what they're actually doing. I think what we're looking for is that blend of passion for the sport combined with the passion to bring others into the sport. That, that, that rare combination, you know, passion for the sport is uh, in back, back to fly fishing. You know, the, the problem fly fishing is facing today is that, that there's, not, there's less and less water access where healthy streams 
and healthy fishing is taking place. And too many people on the streams and too many people having access to that, to those waterways is actually damaging the waterways and causing problems. So there's there are people that love fishing that are almost protective of those resources and, and don't want to bring new folks and are very concerned about the novice fisherman who gets on the water and then doesn't follow the rules and guidelines of conservation. And, and so it's a kind of a counterintuitive uh, nature of that. But maybe there's a better example. And that example that I would give you would be um, a brand we work with called Vans. And I'm sure you've heard of Vans, the skateboard shoe. It's a, it's a sure. large retailer, four or 500 stores. Um, and that, that, that brand started out in skateboarding, uh, in snowboarding, action sports, but primarily a skateboarding brand. And, uh, and, and that started sort of in Southern California as a legitimate, authentic brand around skateboarding. Well, if you look at the stats, uh, skateboarding is in serious decline. Skateboarding is, is lo- losing uh, enthusiasts who are actually participating in the sport daily, practically. And it's, it's dropping by double digits in terms of, in terms of people participating in skateboarding. Vans, on the other hand, as a brand, is the fastest growing brand in the VF portfolio. They're outperforming uh, North Face. They're outperforming Timberland. They're outperforming Smartwool. All the brands inside that space. Vans is the most profitable and, and largest and fastest growing. Well, they have people who are enthused about the concept, the the idea, you know, enthused about the brand. The brand has has exploding. So. I'm not, I don't necessarily want that same equation for bike, but I want to point out that passion for the activity is core, but passion for the retail of it, passion for the profitability of it, passion for the expansion of the pursuit, that has to be equal to it, I think, to take us to the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it makes sense to me. Um, you know, is there... I don't know if this is unique, so I'll just ask you. Our industry, bike industry, seems to be moving towards more single brand or one brand dominated uh, stores. And I know the brands, many of them push that. But there are still a lot of them out there, uh, retail operations that carry multiple brands and and balance it and pick and choose um, is that something that is a is an issue in these other industries, or is it you know? Do you have any view about the single brand focus versus more a more diverse brand representation? Yeah, I think it's. I think all all of those approaches can be effective. I don't think any one is better than the other. You look in the outdoor space. There's there's Patagonia stores uh, throughout the the country, and most every other brand, North Face, has got their own stores, but they also sell their product. Uh, in other specialty retailers where their product lines up alongside of others. So I think it can work across across the, the board. And I think that the secret to all of this is a unique, local, uh, and culturally strong, authentic retail experience. And so whether or not I, I've got a brand on the top of the, the name of my store and I'm representing only one product, or whether I'm Dan's Bike Shop and I carry a variety of different brands, that's I think that just putting the brand up on the on the front of your store does not guarantee you success. And I, I could mention a variety of examples that could prove my point here within the specialty bike industry. Just because you're you have a, a famous brand above your door does not guarantee success, nor does it guarantee success to call it Dan's Bike Shop and have all the brands. What is what's going to happen is 
the experience that happens inside those four walls. That experience is what people are coming back for. That experience is what customers are looking for. Uh, and I think that that the better job we can do of executing that and delivering that consistently, then we build something that's memorable. Then we we build something that people will actually line up for. So um, I think that's true in the restaurant industry. I think it's true in the hospitality industry across the board. It is certainly true in bikes. Sadly, and this has always been the case, Fred, people will, if they come into one of our stores and they and they have a bad experience, Unfortunately, they don't just necessarily get upset with us as the shop owner. They also can get upset with the entire sport. And, and that's where that's the risk we face. The, the new or the uh, curious bike uh, shopper who comes into our store uh, and has a bad experience, doesn't get waited on, doesn't get connected with, doesn't uh, feel welcomed. Uh, they don't just get upset with the store or the brand or the name of the company. Uh, they get upset with cyclists and cycling. And that's why it's why there's just too much at risk here. And that's why we have to, to to take that point of view. So ultimately, I don't think it's a question of the approach to the selling uh, in terms of whether or not I carry a variety of brands or whether I carry one brand. I think it still is down to that one-on-one connection with the customer that wins the day. Yeah, I had a dealer some years ago say, you know, I I, I don't focus so much on the brands in my store. Because I can sell anything. You know, I'm, I'm the connection with the consumer. If I believe in it, I can sell it. And um, I thought that was pretty interesting. And so do you still, I know part of your general manager's training, uh, your man university included personality profiling. And, and this is part of what we previously discussed, I guess, you know, hire for personality. But um, is that, is it practical for a, a bike shop to try to, personality profile prospective employees and and try to match up their personalities with the job description? Well, yes, I obviously we believe in that work because we we do a lot of that work. So to, to be specific, we use something called the DISC assessment and the D-I-S-N-C stand for drive, influence, steadiness, and compliance. And they represent the four primary styles of making decisions and the four primary styles of communication. And all of us have various strengths. So let's just look at the at the D and the C who sit in opposites, in opposition of each other. The D is about drive and passion and pursuing goals. And the C is about data and analytics and stats and math. One is very subjective, one is very objective. One is very emotional, one is very unemotional. So it's less about trying to assort this and pick it uh, and sort of predict it. And it's more about an awareness of your team dynamic. And it's more of an awareness that the tendency for us in the bike industry is to hire folks that sound and look and feel just like us, people that, that, that we get us, you know, the people that, that have a, a shared passion. That's certainly uh, safe and comfortable that we all uh, talk the same way, think the same way, have the same opinions, have the same politics. And uh, while all that's well and good, it does not create a welcoming, well-rounded environment. And so I think the strategy for us is to better understand communication styles, better understand decision-making styles, and then be sure that in our hiring that we're not um, creating what I would call blind spots 
where I'll just give you in my own world, uh, Fred, the, 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 the drive uh, part of communication. I have, I have that in spades. I have no trouble with that. Uh, the influence side, that's again, I'm very good at that. Uh, the compliance side, I'm growing and getting better at that uh, data uh, assessment. And then the S side, the steadiness, the organization, the structure, the process, well, that's where I tend to have a blind spot. And so creating structure, creating a disciplined process, little things like agendas for meetings, little things like writing down notes and, and having a re- reduplicatable process, that's a weakness for me personally. So in my company, I'll gravitate toward people with that drive passion and that influence skill. And I'll overlook the need for structure, process, and systems. And so in my company, I have to be sure I'm hiring people with that tendency, people that are good at structure and process and reduplicatable systems. (laughs) But I'll say that when we're in meetings together uh, and these folks are giving me suggestions and recommending we make these changes well, they they hit me as I, I'm uncomfortable with that. I don't want to have to go through that. Those 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 seem like extraneous processes. Why are we doing that? It's too much. You know, why are we doing all this extra work? And it's because I have that blind spot that I have to listen closely to people from that perspective. And so I think that it is important to understand that just like a balanced wheel, we need all sides, all styles all communication processes and methodologies in order to create a a really open, well-rounded, well-organized machine. Uh, I can can tell you that the industry has struggled. This is nothing new. Attracting and retaining uh, women into this business, attracting and retaining minorities into this business. And now I think we must also consider that it's a challenge to to attract and retain all age groups into this industry. The, these are these are blind spots we've got to be careful of to create the most well-rounded, open-minded, and and welcoming uh, industry we possibly can. That's the way forward, both for retail and for the sport, in my opinion. Today's podcast is brought to you by Marsh and McClellan Agency, a leader in bicycle industry insurance. With MMA, you'll find the peace of mind that comes from knowing you have the insurance protection you need. MMA serves three primary segments of the bike insurance industry, retail bike shops, bicycle product suppliers and manufacturers, and bike trail builders. MMA provides coverage that is uniquely tailored to your risks, led by Scott Chapin, an agent who knows the bicycling world and business. Find out more at marshmma.com. Yeah, great. So part of the discipline that you show, you wrote a book, Orbit. And I, I understand you're putting yourself on the torture rack of writing and writing another book. And yep. one of my favorite uh, manisms, one of your phrases, uh, gentle pressure, relentlessly applied, uh, is one of the focuses of this. Can you describe what you're doing with your new, uh, your new book? Yeah, well, I'm not, I'm not trying to get rich with it. I can promise you that. Book number one taught me that. Uh, nor, nor is fame an, an option either. Uh, you know, as you well know, uh, Fred, writing a book and you said torture rack, you're right on the money the discipline of just making sure I crank out, you know, from 700 to 1500 words every day to, to navigate through getting, you know, getting 40,000, 50,000 words put together into a book is, is quite challenging, but I'm excited about the topic. Gentle pressure relentlessly applied is the forward phrase that is almost the theme 
of Man University. And we talk about it as a methodology for, for leading change, growing a business, effectively improving your, your, your company or whatever it is that you're doing, the team you work with, gentle pressure, relentlessly applied. And so what I've done is I've taken that concept and expanded it into four primary areas of behavior change that a leader or a manager must execute. A leader must, uh, in these four areas, significantly create gentle pressure. One, you must have an agreement on the approach. So let's make sure we all agree on how we're going to do this. Secondly, we must build the metrics that assure we're getting results. So how do we measure this? So second step of gentle pressure relationship applied is, is metrics. Thirdly, training and coaching. And that is when we teach and train and coach and improve the behavior. And fourth and finally, a culture of accountability. And that means we are we are disciplined for follow-up and we actually do the things we say we're going to do. And this came true to me, Fred, when I realized as a training organization that we would go into some stores for for sales training and we'd have a difficult time getting results. We would we'd find that that we after we were there, we would we would try to go back and follow up and create a, an implementation of these new processes, and we struggled. And I tried to figure out, well, why was that happening in some stores? And I realized that training and coaching do not reside by themselves. You know, when people pay the man group to come in and train their team and they don't have a culture of accountability and they don't have measurable metrics that affirm and, and confirm that you're getting results, and they don't have an agreement on this approach, the training and coaching has little effect. So Gentle pressure relentlessly applied is a, is a lifestyle and a methodology of, of getting results through people with a, a disciplined, uh, systematic way of leading and executing behavior change. Now, in doing this work and writing this book, Fred, I, I have said gentle pressure relentlessly applied. You, you called it a manism. Uh, I, I did kind of think I, I invented the phrase. Uh, but when we when we started offering Man University uh, six years ago and we put it into the book, I did some research to go, did I really come up with that or where, where did that come from? And I, I found it being a, attributed to a man named Ray Elliott, who was the head football coach at University of Illinois uh, back in the in the 40s. And um, he he is assigned as the person who said it. And so I gave him credit, Ray Elliott, the general pressure relentlessly applied. But as I'm writing this book, I've got a whole chapter on the origination of the phrase, and I have done extensive research trying to find out who said it first. And it's clear, <laughs> Ray Elliott did not say it first. Um, and, and there are a number of people out there who have who have said it and put their name under it saying they they said it. Well, I'm not, I want to make sure I'm not saying I invented it. I, I pulled it from another resource. I heard it in a seminar that I attended in 1993, and I would love to find out who said it first. So if anybody's listening to this and knows who came up with it, I know it predates uh, 1948, but I can't for the life of me find out who said it first. But I, I sure would like to find the originator of the phrase. It's a good phrase. It's a good concept. What I have done is I've expanded it into the four elements of how you do it. And that's where I'm, I'm creating the origination. So, Fred, I'm a good solid uh, 10% <laughs> into the book. <laughs> and uh, I'm hoping to, I am hoping to finish it and release it early 2020. Okay. So that's not a manism. I'll, I'll uh, purge that from my vocabulary. It's not even an Elliotism. It's an unknownism, right? It's, a, it's an author unknownism at this point. But 
uh, it certainly is. Uh, it's it's a good concept, and it's again. I, I don't know if that's the title of my book. It's the sub. It's the subtitle of my book for sure. I'm not sure of the title yet. Okay. All right. So I, I wanted to ask you. Uh, when I first started in the industry, I, I one of the NBDA presidents, uh, Ken Sigerberg uh, from Berkeley, he would always um, look, as most retailers do, at metrics. You know, measurements. How am I doing today? How am I doing this week? And he pretty much focused on the obvious one, you know, what were my sales dollars? And it would really bring him down. He had one day, I remember, where his day was no sales, one return. So he actually had a <laughs> negative sales day on his metrics. Um, and then you introduced, I think, through the P2 group, the, the notion of a closing rate, where you find a way to track the number of people coming into your store and then compare it to the number of transactions and that, that you come up with a rate that percentage of people that bought something and you use that as a foundation for trying to motivate change and trying to track improvement. Are there any other metrics that you've seen in bike or other industries that are easy to access? You try to track where things are going. Any any metrics uh, we could talk about? Oh, oh, yes. So, of course, we all keep our eye on uh, sales versus last year. The bike industry baffles me here because, you know, in terms of cycling and cyclists, we love metrics. Every, you know, every single sort of software tells us of our wattage output and how much we rode and what our elevation gain was and all, you know, how many seconds and minutes and data, 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 data for performance. And then in the most mind boggling way, specialty bike retailer avoids great metrics. And it is absolutely a real miss from my perspective. So I could talk a lot about inventory uh, metrics, but let me let me make a point for metrics that I think are largely overlooked that we absolutely must change. If I could pound on something, I'd pound on it. <laughs> we must begin tracking individual metrics. We must begin tracking individual metrics. And what I mean by that is each individual salesperson and their contribution at the register. Now, some of us are not even tracking our register metrics, our transaction metrics. For example, I mean units per transaction, average transaction size, as well as you mentioned, a conversion metrics, closing rate, those sorts of things. Average units sold, add-ons per bike. There's a lot of examples, but units per transaction and average transaction size, those are those are big ones. I would like to know, I would like to have those metrics for the store average, and I would like to have those metrics for every individual sales associate. Now, why would I want that? Well, number one, because I want to know how each individual salesperson contributes to the greater good. And are they better than or worse than the store average? If they're worse than the store average, does that mean termination? No, it means training. It means conversations to make sure that they're on board offering additional product, on board offering more expensive products. I find that too much of the time, sales associates, especially bike retail, are allowed to be on the sales floor, walking around and executing what they believe they should do, doing what they think is right, instead of what's in the best interest of the organization. And so, very few retailers listening to this podcast right now are tracking individual metrics. And you're thinking to yourself, well, we don't have the methodology or it would be uncomfortable to share that information or that creates a competitive environment that we think is negative. 
And I would counter all of that with how are you going to improve the individuals in your business if you do not know how your individuals are doing? And so we must address this. And by the way, it's simple at the point of sale to input both the cashier who's ringing the sale and the sales associate who's responsible for the sale. Sometimes it's the same number, sometimes it's different, but most point of sales will accommodate that. And once I'm tracking who the salesperson is that's ringing up this sale or responsible for this sale, I can now pull the data for their units per transaction, average transaction sale, and average transaction size, and any other metrics I can see about their contribution. This is a must. And um, I invite anyone listening to this to, to send an email or contact me to talk about how to get that done. Of course, you have to communicate it to your staff and be prepared for people not to necessarily like it at first. But I can tell you, Fred, we talk about protective mindset and achievement mindset in a store. Uh, the protective sales associate doesn't want to be measured. The protective employee doesn't want to get better. They don't want to learn. They want to just protect their job, keep it safe. The achievement mindset employee wants to be measured. The achievement mindset employee wants to learn. The achievement mindset employee wants to get better. And so the way to uh, to work with the achievement mindset is measure their results, talk about those that contribution, and give them opportunities to improve. Because if, if I know how I'm doing, and for example, I find that my performance is a 2.4 units per transaction on average. Well, if I'm an achiever, I'm going to say to the owner, well, what's the what's the store average? And the owner says, well, the store average is 3.5. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, I'm doing 2.4 and the store average is 3.5. How do I get better? How do I improve? I want to at least get to the store average because I want to be a contributor and I want to achieve. That's the mindset that we're looking for. So to, to, to foster that sort of behavior and to foster that sort of environment, I must measure individual performance. So you walked right into that one, didn't you, Fred? <laughs> well, yeah. And um, that's hard to apply to a, a shop owner, right? I mean, so the owner is the owner. They make every decision. Are there ways to measure owner productivity? Well, I would put that in the same context of a head football coach of a professional football team or a college football team, head basketball coach. What is the owner's job to win? And so the owner's got to balance everything in that P&L, uh, maintain all those relationships, maintain all of that culture of accountability. And so the scorecard for the owner, of course, rolls up to, to winning or losing. What kind of profitability do we have? Are we sustainable? Can we meet our obligations? Am I retaining good talent? So the owner, of course, has to be responsible for the top line sales over last year. We're increasing. The owner has to be responsible for the overall profitability or the margin of the business. The owner must maintain all of the expense control. And expense control is one of the most widely variable opportunities for a bike shop owner. So that's important for the owner. And uh, the owner is also responsible for bringing traffic into the door, bringing people in the door, putting out the, the marketing effort and the goodwill and the reputation of the business. So, yeah, I'm not tracking the owner's contribution at the register. I'm tracking the owner's contribution in the, in the P&L. Right, right. Hope you're enjoying our Bicycle Retail Radio broadcast. Be sure to go to nbda.com to check out our membership benefits. So we've talked a lot about sort of operation of retail, and I know 
you know, you and I both are invested in the, the future of the bike industry and, and in your case, other industries as well. I noticed you uh, still on your on your website, you mentioned the 20 Collective, and that was very future oriented. Do you have any sort of new views on promotion of cycling, growing the industry, 20 Collective? It's all very forward looking. Any any thoughts on that? Well, the 20 Collective served its purpose and created energy and enthusiasm inside the industry that's now led by people for bikes with RideSpot. So that's an example of a great idea that eventually gained some traction, got some sponsorship, turned into a fantastic program that the industry is behind. So the ultimate goal of what the 20 Collective retailers wanted to do and what the RideSpot initiative is all about is is creating some sort of a revenue generating program that reaches out to consumers that funds a marketing campaign that fuels the the cost the incredible cost it would take to advocate for the the passion of cycling the benefits of cycling the reason for cycling and and tell that story to the larger uh, audience of the population so i do think the future is advocacy behind people for bikes and other agencies working together. This is such a fractured industry. And it's sad for me, frankly, that 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 so few entities want to work together. I think that the, the competition inside the industry, you know, is is the red ocean, as it were, the, the Blue Ocean Strategy book talks about the red ocean where three or four or five sharks are fighting over the same seal in the in the water and there's the water's red and there's a full ocean out there of opportunity. And I, I just hate to see the bike industry so fractured and everyone combative and and uh, and fighting against each other. When the, the Ride Spot initiative and, and what People for Bikes is doing and what the 20 Collective initiated is the idea of collaboration and bringing this industry together to to align our resources, to to work together to attract more riders and to create more opportunities for riding and safer routes for riding and everything associated with that. And if we can put aside the, the bipartisanism of it, I don't know how realistic that is, but if we could, then the way forward is a an environment of how do we tell a story of what a great ride does for families, for the environment, for communities, for individuals. And, and that's the story. And so I think the the at the heart of the of the the 20 collectives effort was increasing ridership increases retail. And increasing ridership means we must tell the story. We must together with all entities in the industry share the benefit and the value of the sport to people that do not know that. And so yeah, I think that's the way forward and and frankly Fred everything that that we're doing in the man group from our commitment to great retail to our commitment to what's happening on the brand side is about a great retail experience so that when customers come in and engage with us, whether it's online or in a store or at an expo or at an event, they walk away going, wow, that was a great experience. Cycling must be fun. These cyclists are really interesting and welcoming and fun. I think I'm going to pick it up. This is a great idea. And if we could do that times a million, <laughs> well, we've got we've got a chance. You know, it's, it's that simple. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I think that's the I think that's the way forward. And so uh, every effort ultimately has that end goal. And I think, you know, it just it's the collaborative nature of this is what I think is the solution. And I wish there was more of that happening. So hats off to the 20 Collective for it, for Shimano, for putting that together, 
for uh, people for bikes for seeing the vision, the number of incredible uh, visionary brands that got behind it and invested uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars. And now we have a, a great program, RideSpot, that is that is off and running and has the potential to be exactly what we're looking for. Yeah, that's great. The, the bike industry, the tension between the levels has been there as long as I've been part of the industry. And it people are freaking out justifiably because of the polarization in national politics and people are being more tribal. And I, I heard something the other day that, that kind of resonated with me. Yes, we have differences, serious ones, but the things that unite us are universal and important. You know, both sides in the national politics believe in free speech and an independent judiciary and equal rights. And all of these things unite us as Americans. And yet we have these problems uh, with other issues. And so maybe a little more focus on what unites us than what divides us would uh, would, would do us well here. I agree with that. And and you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of the book, Good to Great, and Jim Collins' take on uh, what he calls a level five leader. And what I think the industry needs is level five leadership. Uh, and level five leadership is is a is a two-sided approach where a leader has two things. One, the leader has a committed will, a commitment to succeed. But balanced on the other side, equal and opposite to that, is humility. And the only thing that brings a competitive will to win, balanced with great deep humility, is commitment to a great vision. And, and when when the organization, when the organizations within the bike industry can get the vision of a country, a, a nation that takes the central leadership of the world for cycling, that, that we can communicate to here is how communities and families and individuals thrive through cycling. It is indicative of what makes us great and how we come together. And when this industry can take that up as the vision for what we're working for, then we've got something. We've got the potential to align, maybe not on the approach or to align, not necessarily on all the tactics, but at least align to the ideology, to the vision. And there at least begins a conversation. And in that conversation where we trust and respect that each of us are in the same vision, then there's a chance for us, I think, to work together towards something even better. So I believe that it is possible. And I think that that's even though Hey, we're, we're, we're talking about bikes. You know, this is a you know, bike retailers are listening to this and all of a sudden we're talking about an ideology. But frankly, every one of us in this industry are in it, not just for the revenue of it, not just for the, the hard goods and the and the sport and the competition. We're in it because we do believe in in what it does for, for people and for families and for communities. And so I think we've got to keep that front and center and, and we're never going to stop talking about it. So. That's what we're doing. Great, Dan. Uh, so that's basically the questions I had top of mind here. And it looks like we're almost an hour in. Was there anything, Dan, that you have in your mind that I didn't ask about or anything that you wanted to, to get out there? I, I guess I would just close with uh, a shout out to the National Bicycle Dealers Association. If you're listening to this podcast today, you're, you're listening because the association has reached out marketed and advertised that this is a podcast you should listen to. And I just got through talking about the ideology and the concept of working together and collaboration for the greater good. 
And I, I know the folks in the association are not trying to be political. The folks in the association are trying to rally the troops. Uh, they're trying to work for the greater good. They're trying to, to bring these entities together. And so I think we are all talking about the same thing. And so that calls for you, the listener, to support this effort and get behind those who are working together to, to build this greater future uh, that the bike industry is you know, so passionately committed to. So I guess I would just say, look inside yourself and, and look past the politics of this and find the ways to, to reach out and create a, a conversation with all of the many different uh, folks in this industry that you work with for the benefit of cycling. And I think that's the, that's the way forward. So ultimately, I happen to believe that great retail is what's going to bring about a great industry. I don't believe this can be done by itself from the brand side. I don't believe this can be done by itself from the advocacy side. I think the front end, the leading edge of this is a retail. I think consumers find bike industry at retail. I think consumers are motivated by what they see at retail. I think the consumers get their education, their passion, and their skills developed at retail. It's that front line of the leading edge, I think, of the industry. So that's why it is absolutely crucial that there be an excellent specialty bike retail in the United States. And that's, I think, what the MBDA is working for. That's for sure. So, um, and I agree with you. That's that's well stated as usual. Uh, so, I wanted to thank uh, the NBDA for asking me to to participate here today, and and of course Dan for for his insight and and wisdom on all of this. And uh, I guess uh, we're pretty much done here. Fred, it was thank great you. talking to you as always. Let's do this more often. Okay, let's do it. Thanks all. This has been Bicycle Retail Radio by the National Bicycle Dealers Association. For more information on membership and member benefits, join us at nbda.com.